Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. And this week we are going to find out what it is like to live the life of the lycra-clad Knight of the Road. How does London look to one of the city's cycle couriers? Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front door. from atop a grassy knoll just around the corner from Highbury and Islington station we're in the shade of some trees on a little green on a grassy knoll if you will it's a fierce day by the time this goes to broadcast we'll probably be in monsoon season so this will seem extremely out of place nostalgia yes with me is John Day and an enormous bicycle hello John hi this thing that you've brought along today I mean this is no ordinary bike but it gives us a bit of a route in, perhaps, to what we're going to be talking about, part of your life. This is twice the length of a normal bike. Think tandem length, and it's just come from Heathrow. Could you give us a description? <laughs> I can. It's a, it's a bullet cargo bike that I bought last week to sort of celebrate, uh, well, I, nothing really. I suppose not being a bicycle courier anymore. It's the kind of bike um, that you see people cycling around London with carrying huge boxes full of legal papers or sofas or ovens sofas yeah you can get i think up to 180 kilos on it so it can <laughs> it can pretty much deal with anything a small car would yeah i've been trying to work out what this is because uh you, you listener you'll know the bike with the attachment on the back if you want your child to be instantly crushed by whatever vehicle fails to stop in time behind you you can get those ones but this is much more i think there, there's a dutch style of bike isn't there with a yeah, great big a, scoop a front feet. this is basically modeled on those on, on those dutch buck feats which are slightly more sit up and beg versions this is a kind this is of, much more buck rogers a bit <laughs> i'd like to think so yeah it's uh, it's solid and fast and great fun to ride and also people get out of the way when you're riding it in a way that they don't always when you're when you're riding a yeah like a fixed gear or a road bike something like that 
That's interesting. I was thinking about how much the front part of it, because it looks sort of armchairy. How much can I have you... a go? Can I have a go? Yeah, yeah, yeah I will. Okay, in a minute. I don't think that's going to make for good audio, but I, I'm definitely going to have a go. Maybe we should have recorded it in the... Uh, <laughs> around. Well, no, because then I'd be up the front end and uh, looking into the exhaust pipe of it. No, I don't fancy that at all. In fact, that's a bit of an issue, isn't it? It hasn't been yet, but then my daughter's too young to complain, possibly, so yeah, she'll... Right, when she... <laughs> has a 40-day smoking habit by the age of five, you'll know it's all right. But it reminds me a lot of those lying-down bikes. It's, it looks like a, a collision has occurred between a lying-down bike and a normal bike. Yeah, it does. Now you can't mention it. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> but you've bought a bike to celebrate not having to ride a bike anymore. Not having to ride a bike professionally anymore, yeah. So, And this uh, experience of, what, four years, I think, has, has formed the basis of a beautiful piece of writing. A very serious, not an amusing piece of writing. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to think it's at least entertaining. But, yeah, I, 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 I was a bicycle messenger or courier for, for three or four years over a kind of ten-year period in between doing other things, studying for various degrees and dis- and discovering that I didn't want to have an office job so um and, and and I wrote a book that was published last year about that experience called Cyclogeography and yeah it's partly a kind of a memoir of of my time as a courier in, in London and a kind of portrait of the city seen from the saddle but it's also as the terrible but unavoidable punning title suggests an engagement with a tradition of in particular London writing that comes under the broad umbrella term of psychogeographical, um, which I'm sure many of your listeners will have come across before. But I kind of discovered this subgenre, if not subculture, of, of writing while I was a courier. So I began reading. The term goes back to Guy Debord and the Situationist International and these kind of radically politically engaged sociologists in mid-century France and Paris in particular who set out a kind of research a playful research program which they termed psychogeography which was to be the study of the relationship between the individual psyche and the urban environment and and, and Guy Debord in particular who was the kind of the the, the, the most prominent um, and aggressive proponent of the idea came up with all sorts of kind of psycho psychogeographic games that he suggested would would allow us to kind of rediscover the urban environment that we all lived in by denaturing it by making it strange in various ways and the, the kind of central principle of of the psychogeographic game was the derive the drift where you would kind of enforce various paradigmatic or, or you know programmatic rather um, rules on your um, on a journey through the city usually a walk so you might do something like draw a shape on a map and then walk the shape that you've drawn and, and record the experiences you have as you go or in, in a kind of famous pointless game they once I think used a map of Berlin to try and navigate Paris so it was all about kind of breaking free from a world of signs that, that the city so often is and this, this tradition of writing was kind of rediscovered and, and promoted by in particular people like Ian Sinclair and Will Self in, in, in the 90s and early 2000s as a kind of way of essentially kind of structuring a walk a piece of travel writing as, as far as i can tell so it's kind of lost its political edge to some degree in its in its second wave manifestation i was i would argue but all the same it sounds as though uh, socially or culturally it's it would still be about transgression of some sort i think it is yeah i mean often the transgression is is kind of sanctioned by um by we've talked a bit about kind of nostalgia for london and i think one charge you might make of, of the kind of second wave psychogeographers is, is they do they do tend to kind of fetishize either a declining industrial infrastructure or a kind of loss you know the romanticization of certain kinds of spaces in london like sinclair trudging around the olympic park and so on has been 
the sociologist James Hartsfield calls it London nostalgia, this idea that we're kind of resistant to things like redevelopment and gentrification and so on because they allow lone white males to wander in raptures, kind of these, these old industrial sites. So I think there's a... I don't, I'm, I don't agree with that critique necessarily, but I think there's a sense in which the kind of radicalism of Deborian psychogeography was slightly lost sight of in, in its second wave incarnation. Because that seems extremely important and, and very much so to, in relation to what I do. The danger there seems to be losing a sort of authenticity, not being able to strike it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the question of whether authenticity has ever existed, I suppose, in this kind of writing, is, that's always the charge, isn't it? And, and it's something I think that, that all of these writers, myself included, it. I suppose made anxious by coming back to how this relates to, to couriering or at least cycling in London partly the psychogeographic tradition is riffing on an idea that walking enables you to is a kind of democratic mode of encountering any kind of landscape and, it, and it's one that is both a little bit subversive potentially because you're either kind of walking in places that you're, you're not supposed to be or allows you to get off kind of officially sanctioned channels of movement so for De Boer and so on the idea that you didn't have to get on a particular bus or a, or a tram line or whatever that you could kind of make your own way through a city was, was kind of exciting Knocking on the door of romanticism, actually. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, that's the, in, in a sense, I'm sure. I mean, all of these ideas do, including the political radicalism, of course, because for for Wordsworth and Coleridge, the walk was a kind of r- radical democratic act and and something that was kind of taken on by people who kind of you know trespassed on Kinder Scout or whatever. There are kind of literal radical manifestations of, of the walk as an act of dissent, and and of course, romanticism at least thought of itself as being a democratic form about in the preface of the lyrical ballads Wordsworth talks about um, a poetry that for the first time is written in the language of the common man and so the whole kind of the whole shtick of romanticism was certainly founded on that notion of um, of accessibility and openness I suppose but but what struck me when when reading these writers is that with a few notable exceptions no one really had written about the relationship between the bicycle ride and urban space in particular or landscape in general um there are a few and i go into them in the book i think there's a kind of strong irish literary tradition um, which treats the bike as a kind of slightly strange and subversive vehicle i'm thinking in particular of the work of flan o'brien and and samuel beckett where the bike becomes this kind of sinister force and in the french tradition in in the work of alfred jarry who is this kind of early 20th century playwright and pataphysician a bit a bit of a forerunner actually of of the situationists and he he wrote a book called the super male which is a kind of long short story about a race between a a group of professional cyclists and a steam train and 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 it kind of takes it becomes kind of absurd it's really a a satire on hyper masculinity and and the way in which the tour de france and the grand tours of the early 20th century were turning bodies into machines essentially so in this race the 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 cyclist one of the cyclists dies and is forced to carry on racing because he's contracted to so his body just lies there twitching and (laughs) finishing the race and they're all kind of doped up on 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 strychnine and all sorts of so partly i I, you know this this relationship between bodies and machines that the bicycle represents that can either be a kind of a futurist orientated kind of vision of dystopian subjugation of the body or can be a kind of nostalgic i'm thinking in 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 terms of who was it who said who, who whose vision of englishness was was uh, old maids riding bikes to churches you know it was um uh, john major john major it was john major wasn't it yeah and then of course you know the on your bikeism of norman tebbett there's this idea that the bike represents kind of uh individual exceptionalism and self-propelled effort really in a, in a conservative nostalgic mode 
Um, so all of these kind of ideas were <laughs> obviously running through my head. I mean, one of the great advantages... He, he does think a lot for a cycle courier, doesn't he? <laughs> you have a lot of time to think as a cycle courier. I think that's the, that's the key. So, you, you know, when you're not, you only get paid for the packages that you, you know, deliver. And, and on the downtime, you, you're sitting around sometimes on nice days like today, often in the, the rain on, on a bench. And um, so I use those moments, you know, I, you, you need to, you know, I read basically in, the, in those moments. And so the book was kind of a product, both of my experiences cycling around London, but also the, the reading I did in my downtime in that. And I wrote a lot of it on, on those same park benches. Did your academic other life have much to do in, in any obvious way with the cycling? Well, I mean, no, weirdly not. I mean, my, I suppose my research interests as an academic are in the same period I, I sort of work on modernist literature broadly conceived but the the authors I wrote about in this book and the ideas don't really there's not much crossover no I've met one I knew him very well a cycle courier he was very much his job he enjoyed it very much he was all about cycling all about being on the road the overwhelming issues that seemed to come through from him were to do with uh, getting things around on time and avoiding death and I presume that must be something that you find yourself having to address when talking about the work yeah that's true I the avoiding death stuff. Stuff. the avoiding death stuff I mean it is it's, it's, a, it's a difficult it's a physically demanding and potentially dangerous job and indeed that was those were some of the things that I think most attracted me to it in the sense that it's actually pretty hard to finish a day's work in, in, in the contemporary world or well, in the west in, the, in, in an urban environment that knackers you you know I think very few people do the kind of physical labor like every day I, I, I suppose an average day you cycle about 60 to 100 miles and by the end of a week I, I really felt kind of really blissfully exhausted and I loved that I loved feeling tired at the end of the day and not having to you know and switching off and I've never slept better than I than I have when I was when I was couriering and you know you mentioned danger and I suppose I mean I I'd sort of always cycled in London I grew up I grew up here and I, I grew up cycling here so I don't feel uncomfortable in traffic and as a again as a courier you, you get such confidence in your own in what you're doing in the, the microscopic movement of, of, of cycling quickly through traffic that you touch would have quite a lot of confidence in your own you know bike handling skills I suppose so I never had any particularly bad accidents although plenty of scrapes and yeah I suppose the single-mindedness you're talking about that your friend had is definitely there you have to to do this job which is quite badly paid and as I've said physically demanding you have to love cycling really there's no point doing it otherwise and you have to discover you have to love discovering the city because even though I'd lived here my whole life I, I felt that that's really the, the, the great kind of breakthrough for me was realising that London was both vast and knowable and, and, and that I wanted to know it I wanted to kind of master a, a version of, of that fabled thing the cabbie's knowledge um, mm. So yeah, I kind of love that discovery. You have this weird relation. You develop this weird relationship also with with the buildings of the city as a courier because you, you you know you, you're often sent to post rooms, especially in big commercial developments. A lot of the work you do is is, is you know place like More London Place or wherever it might be. You get kind of privileged access, or it feels like privileged access to this kind of backstage city that no one else really knows about, and that was pretty compelling too. Can we develop that idea a little bit? Well, I'm just thinking of the kind of... People always ask me, like, you know, what weird jobs do you do? And in the book, I describe a few of them. One was... Some of them are just kind of obvious and, and, and I guess, too irresistible not to write about. So I delivered tea bags to Buckingham Palace once that I picked up from Fordham Masons. And I used to deliver quite regularly packages to Number 10 Downing Street. And you just kind of get way through the front, weirdly. They don't have a post room. So when you're delivering something to David Cameron, as was you kind of wave through to knock on the front door and I, I like that feeling that you never knew quite where you'd end up 
during a day's work. But um, there was there was something else I think I read in your gaze just then before you went down the well rehearsed anecdotes. I think I saw something else there, some sort of fondness for something. Something well, something that's a bit less hard to describe, I suppose. But th- and it sounds ridiculous, but things like the idiosyncrasies of particular lifts, goods lifts in London. I remember um, Greater London House, which is this kind of. I'm sure many of your listeners will, will know it. Just near Mornington Crescent, a big kind of Art Deco-y, uh, Egyptian-clad building, which has the most kind of, yeah, <laughs> infuriating lift, actually, in many ways. But there's, there's something about it and the graffiti within it that, and, that I was sent to kind of every week or so that I grew quite fond of. That and, that and the kind of the, the vast infrastructure underground at places like Moor London, which are, you know, they're essentially just giant loading bays, but they feel like kind of miniature, miniature villages or, you know nation states and some of these places you'll you know they take your photo they'll give you a temporary id and then you're kind of released into this other world and it's a world that i don't think many people have so this is the exact opposite to being a tourist but it's on that same spectrum yes i suppose it is and, and in a sense it takes us back to that question of psychogeography as a as a means of discovering an unknown city either by losing yourself in a place you don't you know, Walter Benjamin famously said that to lose oneself in a city as one loses oneself in the countryside is almost impossible because a city is built of signs. You have to kind of willfully ignore the fact that you can look at a map, that everything's, everything's artificial, essentially, you know, planned and designed and, and organised. And I, and I suppose this, in a sense, my experience as a career gave the lie to that in the sense that though you can read a city, you can't always access everything about it. And that freedom of access that I got was something I kind of shamelessly exploited in that I, I used to the, you know so, so the summarised like Ian Sinclair I, I interviewed him for the book and in the book and, and he was very you know he's a wonderfully um, accommodating man and, and, and I just kind of turned up on his doorstep with a letter one day dressed as a courier and, and it, so the, the kind of uniform of the job gives you this strange access to people think it's a bit weird that there's this courier who's interested in talking to you and, and, and so him and Richard Long who's an artist who I also spoke to for the book and recreated one of his, his cycling sculptures those were both relationships I developed through the kind of weirdness of being a courier and turning up on someone's doorstep and going hello I've got a letter for you well, there's the access, and there's also... I'm seeing how, how one would tie together the quote you mentioned from Benjamin Gitterbord and his artificial impositions on how you navigate. I think what I see in common between you and the, the chap I mentioned earlier was there was a, a great pleasure to be had from being one removed from all the rules. You know, having a freedom to move around in a way that other people... Do, not just about access, but about liberation in some way. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's, that's, there's a great paradox at the heart of that, of course, in that it's a bad unregulated job you're paid often less than minimum wage so the the, the freedoms that, that i agree are, are certainly there in your day-to-day work you know the the idea that you're kind of separate from from the other city users and and, and i suppose in a sense superior um, in how you navigate a city or move around it that, that that was incredibly intoxicating but also completely chimerical and misleading in in in, in the sense that yeah it's a it's very badly regulated you're, you're self-employed so you know, if you get knocked off there's no sick pay you're um, only paid for the work you do is, is that an if or a when <laughs> for me it was a when but there are people who claim never to have not I, I, I think you'd be hard pushed to find a career who's worked more than a few years who hasn't had some sort of scrape but it creates this incredibly strong subcultural sense of community and, and there's a, a kind of ersatz kind of um Union, I suppose, that was set up a few years ago called the London Career Emergency Fund, which is a self-funded... It's not even an insurance. It just pays out to people who get knocked off on the job. And it's the only thing... It was for years the only thing that, that, that 
sort of protected people when they were injured and, and amazingly you know there's some there's some brilliantly energetic people who, who founded it and run it still um, and it's completely funded by couriers mainly through kind of alley cat races or people you know donating uh, money to the cause in the, in the last six months or so there's been a, a strong move to unionize the courier industry through the work of the international workers union of great britain who had uh, quite a lot of success a few years ago campaigning on behalf of cleaners at london universities like soas and ucl i think and they've done great work arguing that the piecework that we've been paid you know rates have stayed the same essentially for about 20 years or had done until they got involved and they and they've they've targeted some of the biggest career companies and got concessions that that meant that careers get paid quite a lot more now in those companies than they did before and there's also a big push as you may have noticed or seen to do the same for the kind of unregulated food delivery businesses that are now springing up like uber eats and uh, deliveroo i suppose would be the big one there's been a big prominent campaign against those in the last few weeks which i think is you know really all to the good it's a strange thing because in, in a sense the courier industry has preempted what is now the hot thing in kind of um, decentralized startup employment labor companies things like you know thinking of of those what's the term for those you know delivery type organizations where you don't really have employees uber is the big one so it's, mm. it's kind of messing with an established employment paradigm and i think to the detriment actually of, of workers the people who are really screwed in these new scenarios these new working conditions and not the they're not the startups but they are the people who have to do the labor on the ground at the end of the day yeah quite so i mean we, there was that interesting case at byron burger not long ago wasn't there it was interesting because when you dig into that you realize that the company is under pressure of huge financial fines to uh, police the paperwork but actually they don't have the equipment or the resources or the, the databases to be able to do that i don't know whether byron burgers can be excused from that behavior by suggesting that too much pressure is put on them to monitor their own staff i think and i, th- I think if that is the case then the answer is to is to is to change the law not to um, I strongly agree with that. you yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I think i think it's slightly different when you have life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kind of energetic, um often hugely financed startups like Uber. Uber's had half a billion pound, uh, dollars worth of investment over the course of its young life and it's, it's not making a profit but what it can do is, is, is kind of instigate this, this, this hyper race to the bottom by sucking up all of the kind of I mean life as a minicab in a, tradi- a minicab driver in a traditional minicab office probably wasn't 
great either. But I'm oh, sure life of luxury, like, I should imagine. <laughs> dance like better than working. I think for what Uber might become if it, if it, if if all of those little companies go under because they've pumped five hundred uh, million dollars worth of investment into essentially buying workers' rights. It seems to me it's a kind of nefarious position you're in if you're employed as a self-employed subcontractor, which Uber drivers and all couriers are, because you you, you basically are an employee. You have to turn up. You have to do your nine to five. You often have to pay to rent equipment or, or a radio or a uniform or whatever. And yet you're afforded none of the... Oh, you're uniformed as well then? Well, some career companies are. I didn't work for any of those that were or that charged you for that. But you usually have to pay a kind of charge to rent a radio and an XTA, the device that gets you get jobs on. And that just seems to me a way of smuggling in Victorian working conditions into the modern seemingly um, forward-looking economy and it's a, it's a dangerous thing and I think if people like the IWGB and other, other, other kind of younger networked unions will do good to combat actually because I think it would be a, it would be a dangerous and terrible thing if, if, if this became the norm of employment which it seems increasingly it is you know zero hour contracts are part of the same tendency I think there's another dimension to it as well and this is a purely on an emotional rather than any sort of intellectual or political basis but watching the average delivery driver pass you by with the enormous cube strapped to their back there's no dignity in that at all no and they're not i mean they look i'm sort of shocked i sort of first noticed them about a year ago and they they're just kind of normal cyclists they haven't unlike couriers who've had about 20 years i suppose to develop a subculture including what they look like you know and, and the kind of the way they ride and the kind of the competence you know lots of the things that you think of as as, as cliches of career fashion if not subculture do have slightly practical justification so things like riding a fixed gear bicycle it makes much more sense to to ride a single speed with with no gears to get mucky and dirty and break for if you're riding in dirty london streets every day and i guess things like you know, wearing lycra under your t- torn jeans i'm not sure whether sort of the tattoos and and facial piercings that you might also associate with careers are necessarily part of a practical response to the working conditions. But no, but it says subculture, it in, subculture in the same way, doesn't and it? And delivery riders just haven't developed that at all. They are, you know, they're just people who need to work, they, they, who, who have a bike and think, well, I'll give this a go. And in a sense, that makes it even worse, I think, the way in which, you know, they don't really know what they're signing up to, I think. Is unionisation the way forward, and specifically in the political, not just the political climate, but with the big black hole, as I perceive it, at the top of the Labour Party, against a strong Conservative movement? Yeah, I mean, I think these... these the, the questions of, of, of what it means to be an em- employee for a company, for, for one of the, you know, for a career company or, or um, any of these other places that kind of smuggle in, that fudge the, the, the issue of self-employment, it hasn't really got a great deal to do with the, the, the meta-politics of, of Labour or Tory rule. It's, it's a, there, there are practical solutions to very acute problems and, and people like the IWGB seem to be being very effective at solving those problems you know they, they are showing that being disruptive that that protesting that getting on the streets and and showing that actually these companies will depend on on their workers at the end of the day just as unions have traditionally always done is an effective strategy at getting workers rights back and and i think so irrespective of the question of whether you know big unions should have any say in in our kind of national political conversation it's clear that the tactics of unionization are as, as essential and important to the rights of workers as they always have been although, although presumably uh, you don't need too many people too too great a proportion of the available workforce not to be unionized for that not to work and something that strikes me with this job beyond all others is that this is a large number of very individual individuals going about their business surely other people are going to step in it's true and that's what makes i think what they've done so impressive actually because traditionally it's been incredibly hard to unionize 
the, the career workforce. There have been various attempts over the past 20 years to do so, and they've all failed, partly because there's a huge turnover of, of, of workers often who are doing this kind of work. But also, yeah, as you say, there's a kind of resistance to collective action, I think, in some in some respects, to well, it has been in the past. What's kind of impressive, I think, about what the delivery protests achieve is that actually there is no union. This, these were just, this was a wildcat strike, because they, and they weren't even actually employees. That was the whole point. It was kind of facilitated by, by people with organising experience, but it, it was the workers themselves saying, no, we're not going to... The, 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 what was happening was that the delivery decided to impose a, a new contract on their riders that would do away with their hourly rate and pay them as peace workers instead. They claimed it was a trial and so on. And, and the workers just made them very quickly realise that those are the people, you know, <laughs> you can't deliver any overpriced takeaways when your workers are unwilling to do that for you. So it's, I think it's been... That's what it's shown, you know. And I don't really know why it's happened as it has. Maybe it's just become more conspicuous or maybe the... I think the truth is that back in the day you could earn quite good money as a bicycle messenger. You know, there's stories of in the 80s and 90s and the first wave of, of couriering. People used to earn... Well, they earn roughly what they earn today, I suppose. So a good week you'd earn 500 quid. But back in the 80s and 90s that would be a pretty good salary, whereas now it's, it's, it's not enough to live on, or barely. And... There are obvious reasons for why that decline has occurred, some of which are kind of technological. The old story of the fax machine taking a chunk of the work out of, of, of Korea's um, bags, and then the internet obviously made another dent in it. So there's definitely been a decline in the numbers of traditional bicycle couriers in London. But people will always need goods delivered. And there's also a, a kind of another funny parrot on a, a, a law, I suppose, of um, information technology that... Did I, you accidentally say parrot just then? No, 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 paradigm. I oh, parrot. I say, but then I realised that was both pretentious and wrong. But um, there's this kind of law... So a lot of the work I ended up doing in my final year on the road was for media companies, where I was carrying, for film companies in particular, hard drives with rushes on. And it's still the case that it's quicker and cheaper, indeed, to, to, to send a courier with a large data dump than it is to email... Um, a, you know, a big file because the, the a hard drive will always or has so far always increased its capacity above that of the bandwidth of the internet. So it's a very strange, almost kind of Moore's Lawian thing where it will always be send quicker over short distances to send a courier with a bike with a you know computer on it than to email something. And I, I quite like that way in which the human component of information transfer manifests itself still at the level of uh, you know big files anyway you know for hundreds of thousands of years the fastest speed information could travel was was really the, the speed of a human being or an animal or potentially i suppose if you take into account smoke signals <laughs> the speed of light but it couldn't travel very far you know pigeons are the obvious kind of analog to to the first wave of that kind of technology but yeah it's only very recently that i think that's been disrupted mm, disrupted but not quite transcended still not quite transcended <laughs> yeah depending on what you're sending what, what how much information you're sending i suppose yeah so who else do you consider to be part of the world of the cycle courier i suppose you know there's quite a lot of solidarity between motorbike couriers and bike couriers partly because you're both on two wheels and feel the same vulnerabilities but you know there's a lot more i feel a lot more i felt a lot more connected with those kinds of road users than than i do now now you know cyclists are such a often irritatingly um celebratory <laughs> group of people that that i i'm you know i'm part of that crew now i suppose you know the the average cyclist but uh you know our great antagonists traditionally were always black cab drivers who are, are not uniformly awful of course uh, but, <laughs> but, but i did they they, they they do have a tendency you know there's the, the the classic line is that there are two types of cab drivers those with passengers and those without and those without do tend to 
behave just as thoughtlessly, I suppose, as couriers do. So they, they, often, I got knocked off once by a courier, a, a, a cabbie pulling a, a U-turn in the middle of Oxford Street, and they do that often, just on a whim, seemingly, <laughs> just to keep you on your toes. So they were. But what was very strange? Were they, actually, were they very apologetic? No, not really. No, no, not at all. Actually, no, they don't. They, it's part of the, I suppose, the confrontational game that you play. You can't acknowledge culpability can you well, so you're lying there spread eagled on oxford street yeah i don't think it's and that. they're not acknowledging that <laughs> well they were not they were just sort of oh, we should have looked where you're going mate type uh idea yeah i was once going down a a, a bike lane in bloomsbury and, a, and a, the passenger of a cabbie opened his door on me and the cabbie blamed me and i thought that was extraordinary and i just wouldn't let him leave i just pulled up in front of him and called the police over and and, and got him done because you can't, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, maybe I don't know my Green Cross code well enough, but I'm sure they're supposed to pull over when they release their passengers onto the world. So he just thought, oh, he should have been able to stop on this door opening on you. But that's the risk: doors opening on you, cabbies doing U-turns, and, and people uh, lurching out, presumably. People lurching out, but you can usually, yeah, you can usually. I never hit a pedestrian, thank, thankfully. I think I think cycling in London is very safe, and everyone should celebrate that and acknowledge that. But the thing that will that kills kind of 90% of cyclists in London is uh, big lorries turning left onto you. Once you don't go anywhere near them and, and kind of avoid those kinds of scenarios, I think the most, you know, touch wood, obviously, but the, the, the kinds of accidents you have are generally low-level scrapes and bumps. From your POV, what's the commonest offence committed by people on two wheels? Oh, no comment. <laughs> no comment? No comment. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think we're allowing that. Well, there's, there's, you know, red light jumping. I suppose is the thing that now I'm not a career annoys me most about cyclists. But also, is it really? Yeah, I don't, I don't do it at all. But I did do it a lot. I thought there was a big defensive argument for it. There can be, I think, if you get to the front and and there's no room for you because the car's parked in the ASL and you you need to get out before the traffic starts moving again. But I'm not really talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about the kind of flagrant bombing through lights that serves to just annoy pedestrians. And I don't do that anymore, but I did do that. And I partly did that because, you know, you're getting paid by the job, so you you really do need to get there as quickly as possible. Or at least that's what I told myself. But also it's because it was quite fun. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to dig any further. I wanted to ask you, though, we're putting together a show about the history of the cab trade. And in our sites at the moment, we have somebody who certainly was very senior in the worshipful company of, of, that, of that trade. Are there any questions or assertions you think it would be worth my while putting to this person? I can't really... I don't want to... No, I mean, I, I can't think of anything... Not just straight-out abuse, is it? No, quite, yeah. I mean, it's always very attractive, and actually lots of people I know... You know, the, the, the problem, I think, with couriering, and the reason I've got out of it, and many people have, is that eventually your body can't really do it anymore and, and there's nothing worse than an old career and quite a lot how, of my, how old are you? I'm 32 now but I think by the time you hit 40 things are beginning not to get easier on the bike and and so a lot of a, a lot of my colleagues and peers and there's nowhere to go unless you become a controller unless you go into the office and, and, and you're the person who's giving out the jobs which is an art in itself and one you can only really develop by having been a career I think then the only kind of escape route is to become a cabbie. So a lot of people I, I knew on the road were doing the knowledge alongside couriering, so I'm sure were I to <laughs> voice any... I mean, I'm sure they probably there's probably a few that have qualified now. But I always... I mean, have you, have you read um, that Will Sullivan? Oh, uh, before you go... So if I'm reading between the lines, clearly, you've got a vague idea you might need to fall back on becoming a cabbie <laughs> at some point, and so you're not going to say anything too keep, controversial. I, I want to keep my options open, <laughs> open, yeah. But it might be... I suppose I'd have to be an Uber driver, won't I, in the future, when there, when there are no cabbies. Maybe they're the... Uh, well, the now, you, now you've gone and done it. Do you, think that's, uh, do you think that's a probability? I think it's a distinct possibility. I mean, there's already a sense in which the black cabbies are kind of, um, you know, 
a heritage treat that you give yourself. They're not the backbone of, of urban transport that they were even kind of 10 years ago, I don't get the feeling. You, you either get one because you haven't organised Uber on your phone or you got a large... Or because you want to take your kid in a pram, it seems, and they're allowed, you're allowed to do that in a cabin and cabin nowhere else. So I think the benefits of... You know, I think it's going to become a kind of fairgroundy piece of heritage, urban infrastructure, the... the cabbie and the knowledge they're all using sat nav now anyway well i I did notice uh, the the last time i hired a black cab i jumped in and we were in a 30 mile hour zone and i'm certain that a self-imposed 20 mile an hour (laughs) speed restriction was going on there yeah quite possibly there's that wonderful rural self novel the book of dave you must have read it yeah which is which captures something i think of the kind of absurd romanticism of of the cabbie and that kind of ritualistic Gildish nature of it that makes it so attractive from the outside anyway the idea of a future dystopian society based completely around the the litany of the runs that you're due to recite in, in the knowledge is a kind of a lovely image and an idea and, and again a way of kind of defamiliarizing i suppose a particularly an urban and a particularly london kind of version of what it is to be urban in the in the book i talk a lot about the relationship between kind of maps and the knowledge maps grant you of a place and experiential knowledge. So my big discovery as a, as, a, as a courier was not just um, knowing the names of places but kind of feeling the topography of, of the city in a way that I hadn't before. And I found over time that I was kind of discovering and unconsciously following the routes of all the, the subterranean rivers of the city, for instance, because a bike like water wants to flow down hills. So you're, you're kind of in the mentality of, of liquids and gradations and topographies and so on. And in a way that, you know, you're not, I don't think, even as a walker. You know, a bike can expose the subtleties of an incline in a way that, that shoe leather can't. And I often found myself kind of following these different forms of ley lines, uncovering a kind of more, an older version of, of London, really, by bike. Speaking of uncovering aspects of London, are there any places around town that might not have caught people's attention in terms of, I don't know, perhaps uh, particular views or places to just pause for a moment and get a different angle on the city? Yeah, well, again, it's one of those things that you probably wouldn't realise why they're so um, attractive, but there are a few places that couriers gather, kind of little covens around the place, and usually you're like, well, why has that become a hotspot for careers together and one of the one of the ones i remember most fondly is on wood street in the city there's a there's a row of ducks that spew kind of warm air from one of the big buildings there and couriers gather there simply because it's warm in the winter and it's a bit like you know i always felt like it was one of those you know these kind of deep sea coral reefs that are cut off from the light that kind of exist around thermo vents at the bottom of the ocean it was a bit like that that life kind of discovers these places <laughs> well courier life discovers these places where there's kind of amenity where the city offers you either either because no one will move you on or because you know there's something off either a toilet that you can use freely or or hot air or free water or whatever so those are the things you're looking for rather than the nice views but the nice views come from again having access to this kind of backstage city so the view from the top of center point is phenomenal and it's not an easy thing to just go and say can i you know get in your lift and have a look but if you're sent on a wait and return to the embassy up there you can make the most of it so i've got an idea that you see yourself as like a deep water fish or something yeah, the metaphors were often oceanic, I think, yeah. You talk incredibly well about cycling. Uh, that's very patronising to say, but you, you talk so... The, the reason I say you talk so well is because you've been talking now about the book and about this experience over and over again. Some people would be fed up with it by now. <laughs> yeah, I did that, what of it? I wondered, that aside, what would you... Uh, and, and I say that with in mind, the fact that you've been uh, talking about this book now for some time. It's, it's been out a little while. Yeah, it's been out for a year now, yeah. And paperback's dropping soon good yeah. <laughs> um, 
and of course you'll be required then to talk even more <laughs> about it. Um, but I wondered if, if uh, this weren't the subject that we were talking about, what would you like to spend three quarters of an hour discussing? Uh, in, a, in a London context? No, not necessarily. Or, in a, in or, a sitting in the park. Sitting in the park context? Ah. Well, currently on my mind is, is, is just endless novels that I've been reading over the last six months, so I suppose it would be arguments about those and whether they're any good. Can we mention the context? Oh, yeah, for that? yeah. Well, ju- I mean, it's bec- I've been uh, judged for this year's Man Booker Prize, so that has been taken. I've been re- I've read 160 books in the last six months, 160 novels, um, which works out as a book a day. And I now am free of that daily grind because we've 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 announced our long list last month. And but I'm still, you know, I'm rereading the long list and thinking about those books, all of which are excellent, and you should seek out. Not, not many like A.L. Kennedy's is a London novel that's very kind of uh, kind of a modernistic actually take on the idea of a, a day in the life of a city um, but we can't go into too much detail at this point can we because of I can uh, only say that they're all excellent and have an equal chance of winning <laughs> I think <laughs> my final question knowing people who are very physical for a living and seeing how their mood changes how their demeanour changes their creativity if they don't get to move, what's the relationship for you between solid cycling and not solid cycling and, and the rest of yeah. your life? How do they affect each other? It's a strong one because I think when I, when, I stopped, when I stopped carrying, a lot of things in my life changed. Um, I, I gave up because I was about to have a, a, a child and then I did have a child and, and so that was a big change. I also... The ultimate delivery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I also had to, you know, partly, partly because I was... I, I, I couldn't... I didn't see myself being a courier for the next decade and having a family so I thought I had to find a I won't say proper job but a different job so I did that and, and, and I now teach English literature as, a, as an academic and that that was a big working change I suppose and I also moved house and various other things so separating those <laughs> different conditions from stopping cycling those kinds of distances is difficult to do but I certainly think it's still the case that to have an idea and to work on an idea the easiest way to to to, to, to achieve that is to, is to go on a bike ride or go for a walk at least or get out and do something you know Wordsworth said famously that um, his brain only worked with his legs and I feel that's completely the case with me and with most people perfect place I think to come to rest uh, but not without uh, mentioning the name of the book and I mean it's, it's kind of redundant to say where it can be obtained it can be obtained from the same bloody place that all books are <laughs> obtained from but what's it called? it's called Cyclogeography Journeys of a London Bicycle Courier and it's published by Notting Hill Editions and the name on the spine is John Day thanks very much pleasure thanks for having me That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to John Day. Thanks to to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Ian Quentin Wolf.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.